everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. I'm Susan Bonner, and I'm here with Deb, and this is an educational, historical show about women that participated in the revolution. We've done many different women. We also do loyalists and patriots. We go back and forth, and we're right on the loyalist side for tonight. So how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. We have both wood stoves going to heat up the house, and uh, yeah, we've been having a bit of a breezy few days with rain and hail, and finally the sky's cleared up today, but the wind hasn't stopped. So winter is on its way as fall is definitely here. Yep, birds. And my wood stove um, completely disintegrated. The uh, stack went bye-bye. <laughs> so when I was in town, I got a uh, a new stack, but we're going to have to install it tomorrow, which is, not fun. The good thing is because of the way we have it in the bus, we don't have it going straight through the ceiling. We actually go have it going through one of the bus windows with um, stove board around it and insulation and all that. So we don't have to climb up on it, you know, not too far anyway. <laughs> That's good because we have two chimneys that we have to clean. <clears throat> well, you have a chimney cleaner, don't you? Well, yes, we will. Ned, Ned said he, my husband, decided he was just too damn old for that kind of nonsense. <laughs> well, we had one of those when we were in Basin, and we had to climb up on the roof, and it was horrendous. It is. It's a tough job, and these, these uh, guys that do chimney cleaning, you know, and hats off to them. I agree, 100%. <laughs> All righty. Well, tonight we are going to go to the natives. We have highlighted the natives before because part of them were loyalists. There was a lot more tribes that were loyalists than there were patriots, but they did exist. And this woman's name, who is a native, is called Madame Satcho, and she is of the Iroquois Nation. We're going to be going up to the Northern Theater again in upstate New York, where a lot of these Indian massacres happen. And I know everyone likes to think how wonderful the natives were and they helped the pilgrims, which they really didn't. And uh, we're going to kind of get into how they weren't that great, just like we did with the slave owners, uh, the slaves, who were also either neutral or were recruited by the British, and how everything you learned about these two races of people and the revolution and dealing with the colonists is completely wrong. We are going to debunk yet again on this. We're like the revolutionary Mythbusters. Yeah, really. 
that have all these women we've never heard about, you've never heard about, no one ever talks about them. So we're going to start with Madame Satchel, and we're going to give a history of the natives and give you an inside look on how they evolved, how they ended up in the wars, because they were in the French and Indian War to begin with, and then they ended up in the Revolutionary War. And a good a fact to know, between the end of the French and Indian War on the continent of North America and the beginning of the Revolutionary War only spanned 12 years. That is not a long time at all. I talk about being war-weary. Poor George Washington, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of the, uh, the generals or the officers that were in the Revolutionary War also were, you know, fought in the... It's really interesting because you think that, you know, the ones that were veterans of the French and Indian Wars fought with the British because, of, you know, they were British subjects at that time. And then during the Revolutionary War, they were on the other side fighting the British. So it's interesting uh, to see the, the, the changes. Some, some, some still stayed with the British, but the Patriots, of course, were, you know, with the Continental Army. So. Right. And George Washington right. was the commander-in-chief. Yes, he was. Okay, so he was a commander-in-chief for a very long time, by the way. Because <laughs> he ended up being our first president under the Constitution. God love uh, Martha for taking care of everything while he was serving his country. Yep. Okay, so what we're going to start with, because she was an Iroquois, uh, Deb's going to read, uh, give us some background on the Iroquois. Okay. And this is from NativeAmericanIndianFacts.com. Um, the Iroquois Indians are Native American people that lived in the northeastern U.S. The area is also referred to as the Eastern Woodlands region and encompasses New York State and the immediate surrounding areas. And if you ever get a chance to uh, go to a museum in Upper State New York and where they have, uh, you know, Indian artifacts. The, the woodland Indians were phenomenal beaters. They, oh, some of their stuff is just gorgeous. So, anyways, that's just because I was interested in this at one time and and uh, researched a lot of the beating that they did. So, that's his little sideline. Continuing on now. The Iroquois originally called them, okay, now you got to bear with me because these, these names that they had for themselves have like 15 syllables, so, you know. Kananthiani. I'm butchering it. I am so sorry. I do apologize. But it means people of the long house, which is what they lived in. They lived in long houses. But today they go by the name Haudenosaunee. Oh. Originally, five tribes made up this larger group, but in 1722, a sixth group tribe joined the Iroquois Nation, and they also became known as the Six Nations. Read on to find, okay. The Iroquois tribe list consisted of the Cayuga, the Mohawk, the Oneida, Onondaga, Tuscarora, and the Seneca. The Iroquois were hunters and gatherers, farmers and fishermen, but the main staple of their diet came from farming. They harvested the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, as well as tobacco for smoking. Their crops were grown in a very specific manner and were managed, grown, and harvested by the women of the tribe. Out of six annual ceremonies, four of them revolved around the corn crops. 
They would move to a new settlement close to water every 10 to 30 years as the soil lost its nutrients and the animal and fish population declined. The women of the tribe also gathered wild berries and roots, greens, bark, sunflower, nuts, and herbs for both cooking and for medicine. In early spring, they tapped the sap from maple trees. See, it wasn't the Vermonters who originated that. The Indians had been doing it for a long time. And turned it into maple syrup. Thank you for doing that. It's one of my favorites. The men were gone during the winter months hunting deer, elk, wild turkey, beaver, fowl, and other woodland animals. Being so close to the St. Lawrence River, they also relied heavily on fishing as a constant source of food. They caught several types of fish, including salmon, trout, and bass. The main tools used for hunting and farming include stone axes, various size arrowheads, wooden hoes, and knives. Spears were also used when fishing. Um, and again, it, it, we're speaking of the, uh, the beading, their, their uh, uh, crafts that included bead jewelry, porcupine quill work, which is another amazing art. It is an art. It is gorgeous. Clay pipes and the making of wampum out of beads, both for trade and for art. Men and women would sometimes have symbolic tattoos. As a musical instrument, rattles were made out of deer toes, and hide, but the most important instruments are the drums and the flutes. The Iroquois are very well known for their masks. Although masks are commonly used among most Native Americans for many reasons, including dance celebrations and to sell as decoration, the Iroquois strictly used their masks for religious purposes. They are considered sacred and not meant for anyone but the tribe members to use. Um, the Iroquois were very spiritual people. They believed that everything took place for a reason and everything, living and non-living, had a spirit. Stories were passed down verbally from generation to generation. The older tribe members would customarily sit around long house fires on cold winter nights and tell stories of how things came to be to the younger Iroquois. Typical Iroquois dress was made from animal fur and hides. Men wore leggings and breech cloths and women long wrap skirts with leather leggings. In the winter, both men and women wore heavy ropes for warmth. Moccasins were worn by both sexes all year long. Um, and during ceremonies, a kestoa, a feathered ceremonial hat, was worn. Iroquois ma- women not only managed the land, but were also landowners. The property they owned before marriage stayed only their stayed only theirs even after marriage. They made all the decisions involving the land for their clan. The men were hunters and traders and protectors. They went to war when necessary, and they did the jobs that required the most manual labor, such as clearing land for new settlements and building new villages. So that that was your your basic uh, the about the Iroquois now. Um, let's see, where is it? Ooh. Where, where's my uh, my my six nations here? Oh well, I guess we'll get into that on the Padnasi, um, the League of Nations. You want me to read that now too, or do you want to wait on that one? No, go ahead because it'll just emphasize what I bring up as well. Okay, and this is from the HodnasaniConfederacy.com website. The nations of the Confederacy recognized themselves as Haudenosaunee from their own language, meaning they made the house, symbolizing all the nations coming together as one. 
From east to west, the original nations of the Confederacy are Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca. The Tuscarora Nation joined the League after leaving their traditional territory in North Carolina and Virginia to become the Six Nations. Any issues the Tuscarora members have are submitted through the Cayugas. Other nations like the Tuscaroras have welcomed have been welcomed in the Confederacy, including the Delaware Nation, the Lion Dot Nation, and the Tutela Nation, and they as well bring their issues forward through the Cayuga Nation. The Confederacy symbol, Confederacy symbol, the Longhouse, was provided by the Peacemaker and is recognized in traditional geographic locations. In the early time, it signified a way of living together as families of the same house. Today, it signifies a people supporting the traditional cultural ways and values. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy is renowned for its organization and democratic system, one of the first of its kind. The Confederacy, also known as the League of Nations, are five separate nations with an agreement to live under the great law as provided by the peacemaker. Each nation is known as follows. The Mohawk, the people of the Flint, Oneida, the people of the upright stone, Onondaga, the people of the hills, Cayuga, the people of the great swamp, Seneca, the people of the great hill, Tuscarora, the shirt-wearing people. And during the American Revolution, the nations were split with some fighting alongside the British and others joining the Americans. After the defeat of the British, many moved to Upper Canada where they were provided by the British crown with a large area of land known as the Grand River Tract to replace the land they lost. While much of the land had been lost to land sales, leases, and squatters, what was left was given the name of Six Nations Indian Reserve Number 40 in 1842. It exists as that today with all the nations accounted for on the land. The Haudenosaunee system of government still exists today, but a federally recognized band council has also been enacted by the Canadian federal government. And let's see. Okay, that's you don't have to get into what they're doing today. Okay, well, they're still there, people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so she was not only part of the Iroquois, because the Iroquois were split, as we're saying, into a bunch of different um, tribes. Um, she was actually what Deb just said. She was a Haudenosaunee. <laughs> Haudenosaunee. Haudenosaunee, okay. Haudenosaunee. So we need to know a little bit more about her and her people. And it was the original five nations of the Haudenosaunee were, like Deb said, Mohawk, Seneca, Cayuga, um, Onondaga, and Oneida. The Tuscarora joined in the 18th century. This is from NEH.gov. They had long been united diplomatically, centered in lands in what is now upstate New York. And this is what we're, we're putting the picture together. So this is all upstate New York. Now, before we go on, Deb and I have to explain to you, even though upstate New York is still pretty, it's not as raw. I would say it's, a sub, it's probably suburbs right now still. Um, and I grew up on Long Island, which was a suburb. But back in the day, that was wilderness. It was wild lands. It was not in any way, shape, or form part of the city or the outskirts of the city. They were in the middle of freaking nowhere. And 
they had the fur traders, and, and you can jump in whenever you want. They had the fur traders first with the French that they would make these little, uh, little fur trading stations, but not really big towns, okay? And they would have people outlined, which we're going to describe by these massacres, that would have a, 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 commu- a, com- a, a, a community really small, spread out all over the place, with like fortifications because they were always fighting the Indians. But it wasn't a real town, okay, because they were mostly farmers. Now, the, these natives had the same thing, okay, especially this tribe. They really had, I, I saw a picture of one of their compounds, and it, it looked, it was sophisticated, it was um, productive, and we'll get into what the soldiers saw when they got there as well. So we're not talking about anything but in the middle of nowhere. This is wildlands, right? I'm saying this correctly, right? Yeah, it was the woodlands. Um, if, if, if you've ever seen the the uh, Mohawk Valley or the Hudson Valley, it, it's woodlands that, which is why they call them woodland Indians, because the the uh, the mountains, the hills, really, because they're old, old, old mountains, so they're worn down. But they they uh, they they just are covered with with uh, you know forest as far as the eye can see, and this part of, well, in, in earlier, in the six, 1760s, uh, the king had declared that there wouldn't be any colonists moving over the, the Appalachian Mountains or the Alleghenies, so, because he, you know, that was, he, that was the Indian Territory, and, you know, after the French and Indian War, the Britain got a hold of the French lands, and he wanted to keep peace with the Indians because they had fought with, you know, they had fought them um, against the French, and so he, he tried to stop any colonization from going past the Alleghenies and the Appalachians, which really upset a lot of the colonists because they wanted to go into the Ohio Valley and up north because of the hunting and the fur trade and and uh, people wanted their own place. You know, the, the colonies were getting kind of crowded, and so they wanted to strike out, which is one thing that upset the um, six nations because they were intruding upon what they had been told was their land, and um, but you know the colonists were going, wait a minute, you know this is we're here, this is you know we're we're getting crowded over in on this side of the the mountains and we want to spread out and George Washington was also one of them. And he he uh, was looking at Ohio territory in the '60s, and uh, when when this um, uh, executive action by the king came down, it it upset him, and uh, that was one more feather in the cap of the colonists against the the king king's rule. So there's a lot. To everything, see, this is not so cut and dried as people have been taught. There was a lot going on all around this. 
there were so many different situations um, all at once. So you, you can't just read about the battles. There was a lot of uh, policy and a lot of people and, uh, you know, uh, cultural clashes and whatnot that were all taking place during this time. So, and you have to remember the British also took over this part of Canada from the French. So, where do you want to go from here? Are you there? Did we lose you? Did we lose Susan? Susan! Uh-oh. Let me see if she's still with us. Um, I think Hello? We... There you are. Hello? Hello? There... Okay. <laughs> I okay. muted myself. Yes, you did. <laughs> I did. Okay, so that's what you get the, the little bit of the background of that. We're going to get more into this background because, like she said, that, that is complicated. Okay, so, uh, all right, uh, upstate New York. The Haudenosaunee were also called the Great League of Peace and Power, which she also had read. They were indeed powerful, but not entirely peaceful. They fought hard against many enemies, including uh, Algonquins and others in the 17th century. Their matrons played an important role in deciding war and peace, captivity and death. Women in these communities had long had the power to help select chiefs to participate in councils and to wage war. Now, again, I have to pause here. What you have learned about women in the, co- the colonies as well as slaves, as well as natives, was wrong. We, we had more power than anybody has ever explained to any little girl, including me, okay? We were taught that we had to get power through legislation. We had to have power through the women's movement. No, we already had it. We just had to keep cultivating it, and it would have happened. So this tribe has, as the matrons, played an important role, um, They were also central to the agricultural labor that provided resources, stability, and power. Indeed, one French observer declared that it is the women who really make up the nation. All the real authority rests in the women. They generally lived in longhouses, which included an extended corridor dotted by hearths. As we know from eyewitness accounts and archaeological findings, those who shared the house and its hearths were kin, connected by marriage and blood. Compartments holding a nuclear family formed the sections of the house. Reciprocity and harmony were, harmony were central ideas for those who lived together in those close quarters. But that didn't go for outsiders, okay? So I, I have to make this clear, right, Deb? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because everyone's like, oh, they're all one and why? Yeah, to each other. Okay. Uh, kin and kin, you know, it was that... The, you have to remember that there were there were usually five clans within a tribe, and you were with your clan. Right, and I'm going to get into that because you gave me that article as well. I'm going to get into it right after this. Okay. Indeed, the word Hanoflani means the whole house, or as a historian, blah, 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 uh, metaphorically, the five nation, national fires of the five nations, which stretched 
across Iroquois like the central hearts of a communal dwelling and reciprocity united their people. Now I have a little bit more on here. Among the Haudenosaunee are groups of people who come together as families called clans, just like that said. As a matriarchal society, each clan is linked by a common female ancestor with women possessing a leadership role within the clan. The number of clans varies among the nations, with the Mohawk only having three to the Oneida having eight. The clans are represented by birds and animals and are divided into three elements, water, land, and air. The bear, wolf, and deer represent the land element. The turtle, eel, and beaver represent the water element. And the snipe, hawk, and heron represent the air element. Each member of a clan is considered a relative regardless of which nation they belong to. And that's what she was trying to say. You're saying that, that there's a society within a society within a tribe. Right. So if you were the wolf clan of the Mohawks, then the Oneidas of the wolf clan would recognize you as well. Yeah, they were kindred. Um, and, and clans did fight clans. You know, this is just the same thing as the Vikings and the same thing as the Celts. Yes, yes. But the difference is, by the time we, and this I have to point out, I'm sorry, that by the time we landed, we were no longer this thing. I mean, we would do it ceremonially, um, that you belong to a clan, but we had already evolved, right, Dad? And we never did this stuff anymore. They were still doing it. Yeah, and it's too bad that we we've lost the. I mean, clans are looked down on now. It's it's like you know you you can't get to, unless especially if you're white, you can't clan up. Um, so in 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 the British Isles, you know, you go out into the country, and and the clans are still important and. There are leaders of clans, and um, it, it's not a power power position like it used to be. But um, I, I think we, we're missing some things in in life without having clans. I, I like well, the idea of clans. Yeah, but I, my point was that they weren't as evolved as we were. Oh, well, they, that's what they thought. Yeah. Okay. We, we had already given up tribes and given up you know, tribal fighting. I mean, we still were having wars, but we had given up tribal fighting, and we did, you know, anyway. No, I mean, it was, we just turned clans into nations. Right. Yeah, we were fighting nations. But, right. You know, it's still the same basis, though, and, and, and people that try to, you know, this, this, this uh, you know, putting it, putting us all together is, is one, it, no, the, yeah, you have the umbrella, but then there's like the Iroquois nations, and then underneath was the tribes, and then underneath were the clans. And amongst that, there was a you know the Oneidas would stick up the the wolf tribe or the wolf clan of the Oneidas would stick up for the wolf clan of the say the Senecas against the bear clan or you know some other tribe. I mean, it was. It was family. It was it was kin, and and I, I'm finding we're losing this kin thing, and it just depresses me. But anyways, that's totally off the rails. Okay, so 
A Wolf Clan member of the Mohawk and a Wolf Clan member of the Seneca Nation are still considered relatives. Family names and clans are passed down from mother to child. For example, if a man belonging to the Turtle Clan were to marry a woman of the Wolf Clan, the children would be of, that, of the Wolf Clan. Within certain clans, there may also be different types of one animal or bird. For example, the Turtle Clan has three different types of turtles. The Wolf Clan has three different types of wolves, and the Bear Clan includes three different types of bear, allowing for marriage within the clan as long as each belongs to a different species of the clan. This is and, this was really intelligent. Number one, if 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 the name is passed down from the the woman to the child, that was because you certainly knew who the mother was. No one always too sure about the father, right? You know, they didn't have DNA testing back in those days. And then by separating the types of bears, you didn't intermarry too closely. You know, you brought in fresh blood to make the tribe or the clan strong. I don't know if they realized that this was the good thing that they were doing, but it... it well, got... and that, that has to do with um, genes. That has to do with diseases. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you breed anything... Yeah, I know people get over it, okay? When you breed anything, um, <laughs> you don't want you don't want the same gene pool because it becomes weakened as it, it as it moves on and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know that even goes with you know plants. It goes with anything. Anything. So you need, like you're saying, you need new blood um, to keep. And not to, she didn't mean it metaphorically strong. She meant being healthy. Healthy, yeah. Yeah, disease-free. Healthy. So you didn't get deformities and you didn't get, you know, um, being prone to illnesses. Right, and that's why we have laws in many states how close a family member you can marry or cannot. Yeah. And that's that's because of uh, passing on diseases and weak genes. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so in Haudenosaunee society, each person has their own family, which includes their mother, father, brothers, and sisters. But with this comes their extended family, including everyone else belonging to the same clan. This, the reason that we're bringing this up and getting into this in depth, because it's going to have to do with Sullivan's uh, march and George Washington's decision. Uh, to do this. So we need to give a background on how close these people were to each other. Um, This system was especially helpful when traveling from nation to nation as people would search out members of their same clan who would then provide food and shelter and care for them as part of their family. Because people of the same clan are considered family, marriages within the same clan are forbidden. The clan system still survives among those who follow the traditions. Oh, that was that. Um, Let's see. I'm going to go back to uh, Madame Sasha. The Haudenosaunee initially followed a policy of neutrality in the American Revolution. Most of the Confederacy, along long allied, allied with the British, had little interest in joining in the Patriot cause. One of the best known of these campaigners 
was Molly Brandt. I am not going to say her name. We could never say it when we did Molly Brandt, and I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> I don't think we could. <laughs> yeah, it's it's another one of those, you know, like ten syllable, lot of consonants and vowels, and it's amazing name. And I really do wish I could say it, but I would slaughter it. I know. So Molly Brandt recognized in Mohawk communities as the widow of Sir William Johnson the pre-revolutionary British agent to the Indians. Her arguments were critical in drumming up support for the British, since one word from her, quote, goes farther farther with them than thousands from any white man, as one observer had it. Thanks to the efforts of her, her brother, and others, Mohawks and others began fighting on the side of the British. When the fateful resolution to join the British side passed the Council of Warriors, Records noted that the mothers also consent, indicating the political standing of the Haudenosaunee matrons. All but the Oneida and the Tuscarora joined, although the Ondonga split. That's what I was trying to tell you yesterday, and I, I couldn't find it. I was looking for it when we were going through the copy, because even amongst the tribes, they split. I mean, this is such a, such a civil war. I mean, even the tribes split up. Yeah. Right? Yes, yes, they did. I mean, there, there were those Lord. who didn't want to be involved at all. You know, there, there were they just. But then they figured that, uh oh, you know, the Patriots are rising up against um, the British, and they, because of the British's uh, army's history, uh, you know, they in the especially in the French and Indian War, they felt that they were safer. Uh, in keeping their lands and uh, in keeping safe by joining up with the British rather than the Patriots, because they really thought the Patriots were going to lose. Okay, so um, a series of raids. Uh, Did you find your book? Yes. Okay. A series of raids by joint um, Haudenosaunee and British leadership on the borderlands of New York and Pennsylvania plagued Patriots in 1778. Now, before we get into this, I need you to. What are we doing next? Um, I need you to give that background on the natives and what they were doing in that state, and I forget which one it is. Let's see. Um, Connectivity history? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let me get organized here, because I have books, I have windows, and I have offices. Okay. No, that's not the one. No, that's not the one? Let's see. No. Okay. Oh, yeah, that was the campaign. Let's see. Let's see. We were just talking about it before the show because it was going to give a little background on why George Washington made his decision. Valley Massacre. Uh, That's it. George Washington. Yes, this one. Yep. Yes, the history.net. Right. Okay. This is uh, the background to the uh, Sullivan campaign, which we will be discussing shortly. 
it's uh, over at history.net and historynet.com, I'm sorry. The, Cher- the Cherry Valley Massacre convinced General George Washington to launch a massive no holds bar retaliatory, retaliatory expedition. And let's see, it's by Ron Sodalter. On the afternoon of November 11, 1778, Captain Benjamin Warren cautiously led a group of soldiers out of the small fort at Cherry Valley, New York, and straight into a scene from hell. As the Patriot soldiers walked through the once thriving farming community, they saw nothing but carnage. A man weeping over the mutilated and scalped bodies of his wife and children, other corpses with their heads crushed by tomahawks and rifle butts, charred human remains in the smoking ruins of cabins and barns. It was, Warren later wrote, a shocking sight my eyes never beheld before of savage and brutal barbarity. The savagery had begun early that morning when a hundred-strong force of loyalist militiamen, Seneca Indians, and a few British soldiers had appeared out of the fog and rain. The town and its small garrison were taken completely by surprise, and the raiders, led by Tory Captain Walter Butler and Mohawk War Chief Joseph Brandt, who was Molly Brandt's son, if I remember correctly, uh, launched into an orgy of death and destruction. The fort managed to hold out, but the town and its people were defenseless. That was their brother. Oh, that's right, her brother. Yes. Right. Thank you. The fort managed to hold out, but the town and its people were defenseless. By the time the attackers withdrew, more than 30 civilians, mostly women and children, and 16 soldiers were dead, and nearly 200 people left homeless. The assault soon became known as the Cherry Valley Massacre, and it would help convince General George Washington to launch a massive, no-holds-barred, retaliatory expedition. Their names have a romantic, almost mystical ring, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Mohawk, Oneida, Tuscarora, but there was a time when mere mention of these tribes struck terror in the hearts of settlers along American first frontier. They referred to themselves collectively as Nasani. They were the Six Nations of the Iroquois, and by choosing sides during the American Revolution, they ensured their own destruction. Before the war was over, Iroquois homes lay in ruins, their crops and orchards burned, their people freezing and starving. For hundreds of years, the tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy occupied most of what would become New York State. Their territory included the Mohawk Valley and the... Um, uh, oh, river that courses 130 miles from the Adirondacks to the uh, Hudson. The river valley was a gateway to the west, and with the coming of the whites, it would become one of the most hotly contested grounds in North America. In the years before the Revolution, the Iroquois tribes had developed close relationships with the British based on commerce, war, and in some instances, intermarriage. When war threatened between Britain and its colonies, the Iroquois at first sought to remain neutral. But with prompting from British leaders, Joseph Brandt and his influential sister Molly soon joined with Seneca chiefs Sayenquerata and Complanter to pressure the Mohawks, Senecas, Onondagas, Cayugas, and some Tuscaroras to fight alongside the British. In September 1776, over strong internal dissension, the Iroquois tribes formally and secretly agreed to side with the British. Only the Oneidas and some Tuscaroras aligned with the Patriots. 
The Indians who stood with the British generally fought alongside American and Canadian loyalists. The most infamous band of loyalists to utilize Indian allies was Butler's Rangers. And we've talked about Butler's Rangers before, and they, they were a very uh, brutal and, and uh, very effective group of uh, rangers. A partisan regiment formed in 1777 under Lieutenant Colonel John Butler, a Tory from the Mohawk Valley and father to Captain Walter Butler. While focusing their activities on the New York and Pennsylvania settlements, Butler's irregulars ranged as far afield as Virginia and Michigan. They were extremely effective and at times brutal. The 1778 Wyoming and Cherry Valley massacres, the bloodiest of many border fights, were largely the work of Butler's Rangers, together with Corn Planter and Zayankaratas, Senecas, Brant's Mohawks, and Indians from other tribes. The July 3, 1778 clash in Pennsylvania's Wyoming Valley, a stretch of the Susquehanna River in present-day Luzerne County pitted some 800 of Butler's Rangers, Senecas, and other Indians against about half that number of local militia. Near the settlement of 40 Fort, the Loyalist forces lured the Patriots into an ambush, broke their line, and pursued and killed many of the militia, reportedly taking 227 scalps, a custom then practiced by Indians and whites on both sides. Iroquois warriors also killed a number of prisoners. Afterward, a rumor of wholesale torture and murder by the Indians spread throughout the area, prompting thousands of settlers to flee. In New York State that spring and summer, Brant led his Indians and Tories on raids of half a dozen settlements, burning them to the ground and driving off or killing their cattle, setting the stage for the most brutal of actions at Cherry Valley. What happened at Cherry Valley that November 11th was indisputably a massacre, and Brant was to become one of the Patriots' most reviled enemies, a complex man who sat, straddled two cultures. He received a European education and associated with such luminaries as Aaron Burr, King George III, James Boswell, and George Washington. Although known to his enemies as the monster Brant, he often showed mercy and compassion in battle. There is a strong argument that the depredations at Cherry Valley were instigated by Walter Butler over the protestations of Brandt. At the very least, Butler lost control of his Indian warriors. That raid was undertaken in vengeance for the burning of several Iroquois settlements in October by a Continental Fire Rifle Regiment and some Pennsylvania militia under orders from New York Governor George Clinton. Thus, the raid on Cherry Valley was the most savage attack in a running series of mutually retaliatory border conflicts. Washington was mindful that the key to all overall victory lay in the east, but he could no longer ignore the British Indian threat in the west. Though he was reluctant to divert any regular units, Washington realized that after the depredations in Wyoming and Cherry Valleys, a significant military campaign was a necessity. The first choice to command such an expedition was Major General Horatio Gates, the reputed hero of Saratoga. Mm -hmm. But Gates showed his characteristic reluctance to expose himself to combat and begged off on grounds of age and infirmity. Command of the expedition then settled upon Major General John Sullivan, a truculent one-time New Hampshire lawyer whom Washington instructed in a detailed May 31, 1779 letter to move against the hostile tribes of the Six Nations of Indians with their associates and adherents. 
The immediate object of the campaign, Washington said, was the total destruction and devastation of their settlements and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. Sullivan was told to carry out his mission in the most effectual manner, that the country may not merely overrun but destroyed. Okay, now we need to stop right there. I'm going to say something about General Sullivan. It's going to be brief, and then I want you to read something from your book. Alrighty. Okay, so this is from RevolutionaryWar.net, General John Sullivan. John Sullivan was born on February 17, 1740, in Somersworth, New Hampshire. When John was 20, he took Lydia Remnick Worcester to be his wife, and their first daughter died when she was a baby. After that, they had another daughter and three sons. Later, they had another daughter who died when she was two years old. In 1758, John started studying law. In 1763, he started to practice law as a, as a profession. John was the only lawyer in the Durham, New Hampshire, and as such, many people were upset with him over lawsuits having to do with foreclosure and other personal matters. In 1766, he even started to receive threats from his neighbors. However difficult living in Durham may have made his career, it did not do him so badly socially. During his time there, John became great friends with the royal governor, John Wentworth. In 1772, the royal governor made John a major in the New Hampshire militia. When the strife started to grow with Great Britain, however, Sullivan found himself growing apart from Wentworth. He found himself definitely leaning toward the side of the Americans, and this successfully destroyed their friendship. On July 21, 1774, the first New Hampshire Provincial Congress met, and John Sullivan was elected as delegate for Durham. Later that year, Sullivan and Nathaniel Folsom were sent to the First Continental Congress as delegates for New Hampshire. As battles began to break out across the country, Sullivan began to help lead soldiers to fight. He was captured at the Battle of Long Island, but released. He didn't let that stop him and went right back on fighting at the battles of Trenton and Princeton. He also became a part of finding ways to smuggle weapons and ammunition to the American soldiers. Perhaps the most notable of these was the Sullivan Expedition. This, among others, made him a hero when he finally returned home. Um, in 1775, John was elected to the Second Continental Congress. The following year, when George Washington was appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, Sullivan was commissioned Brigadier General John Sullivan. All the way through the American Revolution, Sullivan juggled the responsibility of war and the Congress. And that's who led this expedition. He was fiercely loyal to the cause because this expedition, well, you're going to say, was horrendous. Okay. okay. Are you ready? I am. And this is from Ron Chernow's book, um, Washington, A Life. And this is uh, where he has to make this decision to take care of the Iroquois problem. In framing policy toward Native Americans, George Washington spoke in many conflicting voices. As an inveterate speculator in Western lands and a military man with firsthand knowledge of Indian raids on frontier outposts, he was capable of railing against Indians as savages who committed barbaric acts. 
In a less than enlightened letter of 1773, told George William Fairfax, colonists had a cruel and bloodthirsty enemy upon our backs, the Indians. General war is inevitable. Is inevitable. Yet the same man could sound statesmanlike in urging his countrymen to treat the Indians fairly and coexist with them in peace. He always advocated buying Indian lands in preference to attempting to drive them by force of arms out of their country. Frequently, he manifested horror at the avarice of real estate speculators and the wanton depredations of settlers against Native American communities. His tone, however, varied subtly with the audience in the situation. The American Revolution did not give Washington the option of developing a broad-minded Indian policy, especially when dealing with the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. These proud warriors felt more endangered by American westward expansion than by British policy, which had banned settlements beyond the Alleghenies, starting with the 1763 proclamation that had so infuriated the young Washington. The Six Nations weren't uniformly pro-British. The United sided with the Americas, but such fine distinctions often got overlooked in the heat of battle. Of special concern to Washington was the capable Mohawk chieftain, Joseph Brandt, who we just read, who had plotted with the British to attack American settlements in the Mohawk Valley of upstate New York. And it talks about the Cherry Valley Massacre and Wyoming and George Washington uh, at the time uh, it, 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 it says here, the assault produced such outrage that Washington had no choice but to take decisive action. He says, it is in the highest degree distressing to have our frontier so continually harassed by this collection of banditti under Branton Butler, he told General Edward Hand, warning of retaliatory measures. At various junctures, Washington extended diplomatic overtures to the Indians. As early as January 1776, he had presided over a parley of Indian sachems. John Adams was then visiting the camp, and Washington, with a droll flight of fancy, introduced him, introduced him as belonging to the Grand Council Fire at Philadelphia. I love that. I think we should call it that, you know, from now on. During the Middlebrook winter of 78 and 79, Washington invited Native American chieftains to tour the camp and witness the size of his army. James Thatcher wrote how his brigade was paraded for the purpose of being reviewed by General Washington and a number of Indian chiefs. His Excellency, with his usual dignity, was followed by his mulatto servant Bill riding a beautiful gray steed. The French alliance helped Washington to woo Indian tribes that were erstwhile French supporters. Nonetheless, most tribes made the rational if ultimately calamitous decision that they had to protect their homelands, and that the best way to do was by supporting Great Britain which they thought more likely to win the war. By March 1779, Washington had steeled himself to act ruthlessly against the Six Nations and resort to cold-blooded warfare against civilians as well as warriors. His aim, he told Horatio Gates, was to chastise and intimidate these foes and cut off their settlements, destroy their next year's crops, and do them every other mischief at which time and circumstances will permit. Even when Cayuga Indians sent out peace feelers in early May, Washington dismissed them as mere tactical ploys. A disposition to peace in these people can only be ascribed to an apprehension of danger, he told Congress, and would last no longer than till it was over, and an opportunity offered to resume their hostility with safety and success. Fearful of further Indian defections to the British, Washington entertained six Delaware Indian chieftains on May 12th. 
He thought that as long-standing Iroquois enemies, they might be drawn squarely into the American camp. His speech to them began bluntly. Brothers, I am a warrior. My words are few and plain, but I will make good what I say. Tis my business to destroy all the enemies of these states and to protect their friends. He scorned the British as a boasting people who didn't deliver on promises and contrasted them with the trustworthy French. Now the great king of France France is become our good brother and ally. He has taken up the hatchet with us, and we have sworn never to bury it till we have punished the English. The speech, likely drafted by an aide, included Washington's most explicit reference to Jesus. You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. Such diplomacy didn't forestall the punitive uh, measures Washington initiated against Indian settlements three weeks later. Clearly in a vengeful mood after attacks on American civilians, he contemplated a drastic removal of the Six Nations from their traditional hunting grounds and farms. He ordered General Sullivan and about 4,000 soldiers to march to the Finger Lakes in upstate New York and the Susquehanna Valley in Pennsylvania and undertake the total destruction and devastation of Iroquois settlements, grabbing women and children as hostages for bargaining purposes. The Indians must have been forewarned, for Sullivan's men often swooped down on deserted villages, which didn't stop the Americans from reducing 40 towns to ash and incinerating 160,000 bushels of crops. Um, hey, let's see. Anything else here? Uh, Although Washington admitted that Indian families were fleeing in terror, he rationalized these harsh measures as fit punishment for assorted cruelties practiced by the Indians on our unhappy frontier settlers, who, men, women, and children, have been deliberately murdered in a manner shocking to humanity. This wasn't the last word on Indian policy from Washington, who still hoped to develop friendly relations with even hostile tribes. To compel a people to remain in a state of desperation and keep them at enmity with us is playing with the whole game against us, he told Philip Schuyler. Nonetheless, the cumulative devastation wrought against Indian tribes during the war crippled their power and disrupted their communities, causing incalculable harm and making them vulnerable to forced resettlement policies later inflicted upon them by several American presidents. They should have sided with us. That was my editorial comment. But they chose the British because they thought they would win. Well, so did the Loyalists. Yes. And they found out that it wasn't all that great either. Nope. No, Britain had a way of throwing everybody under the bus. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, well, now... We're still on the um, the massacres and what he actually had to do. And then one Patriot captain recalled, such a shocking sight my eyes never held before, savage and brutal barbarity to see my husband mourning over his dead wife and four dead children lying on her side, mangled scalped. Um, another one, even the loyalist troops condemned. Such acts of wanton cruelty cruelty committed by bloodthirsty savages as humanity would shudder to mention. So uh, that's when he said, you know, 
Washington declared that, did you say the cry, did you quote this, the cry for the distressed? No. Okay, so this has a quote from him, from George Washington. The cries of the distressed of the fatherless and the widows come to me from all quarters and appear to leave me no alternative. So that's when he decided um, that he was going to do this. So before I get on to... um, There is one other quote that I want to say by him because it was... uh, very profound, and actually this is something that we need to do with our enemies. Okay. This is what he gave, and then we're going to get into the Sullivan campaign. Washington gave Major General John Sullivan explicit instructions for the 1779 campaign. The immediate objects are the total destruction and devastation of their settlements and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. Washington also ordered a scorched earth policy. Parties should be detached to lay waste all the settlements around with instructions to do it in the most effectual manner. The country may not be merely overrun, but destroyed. He stressed the need to achieve the total ruin of their settlements, since our future security will be in the terror they experienced. Right? Mm-hmm. It's war, people. Yeah. It's yeah. not this mansy pansy stuff. It's freaking war. Yes, and and that's that's the the part that so many of our leadership is missing is that through power comes peace. Um, peace does not bring power. You have to have the power to stop the course of action, which is why in the Civil War Sherman was sent on his march because Lincoln wanted the war to end so that more men and women would not, and children would not be killed. Um, and this is why, you know, in World War II, um, Coolidge, uh, Coolidge? Yeah, Coolidge. No. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's getting late. Um, the, the bombs were dropped on Japan because if if Japan had gone further than Hawaii and hit the mainland, or if we had gone to Japan and hit the mainland, millions of people all over the place would have would have died. It's just, war is insanity, and it, it's, somebody has to stop it so it doesn't go further and, and wreak more destruction. And that's where the, the uh, you know, this is one thing that we're losing in in our military leadership uh, by the suit is that we, you know, you can't build hearts and minds pre-war battle. No. You go in, you take out the enemy, and then we'll talk about it. Right. And then um, Washington again, was agonized on how to carry the war into the Indian country. He asked Shiler's um, guidance on number of troops and methods required. Shiler suggested we should be so fortunate as to take a considerable number of women and children of the Indians. I conceive that we should then have the means of preventing them thereafter from acting hostilely against us. He noticed the difference. He wasn't going to kill the women and children. 
They, that was not their goal because we, we, we loved life so much. We were a Christian nation. We honored life. He was going to capture the women and children. And later on in this article, it also said that they wanted to get as many as the elderly and infirmed. And this is where it goes to Madame Satcha. Um, they wanted them, they were hoping that they would leave the elderly and the infirmed behind and flee if, the, if they had found out they were coming so that they could capture them and not kill them. And that's what he's saying with the women and children. He wanted to capture them, not kill them. The British, the Hessians, and the natives killed women and children. They didn't care. That was the difference, ladies and gentlemen, between the Americans and the rest of the world. Anyway, now it's time for uh, Sullivan's campaign. Oh, that would be me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, we'll go back to the SchenectadyHistory.org. All righty. Uh, the following chapter was written for the history of the Mohawk Valley Gateway to the West by Mr. John Pia, the historian of Amsterdam. Okay. So, uh, he early became interested. All right. All right. That was just the introduction. Okay. Kanajahari was the chief point concerned in this movement, but the Happy Hollow Road and the Fort Plain and Asquago Trail were also involved. The exact bateau and supply wagon, wagon route taken by Clinton's men has been a matter of dispute. The two roads concerned in this controversy are comparatively short, and they meet at Seaver's Lane, less than a mile from the Mohawks. The first road is that which leaves the Kanajahari village square and climbs Academy or West Hill past the Hotel Wagner. Okay, okay, okay. We don't really need that. That's just, you know. All right. The three roads Three roads were selected by General Clinton for military reasons. The Oswego Trail Force was the right wing, guarding the Happy Hollow Center, while the regiment on the Kanajahari-Cherry Valley Road formed the left wing guard. As the supply and bateau wagons moved southwest from the Mohawk over the center road, the right and left wings deployed and guarded the movement from attack by the Indians. Brant's savages seemed to have erred in not attacking Clinton on his portage march or when he was moving down the Susquehanna from the site of present Cooperstown. Clinton's portage for march forms one of the greatest feats of arms of the American Revolutionary Armies. It has had scant historical mention, and Mr. Fia's article is the first uh, presentation of the subject within the writer's knowledge. Okay. Um, the hideous massacres of Cherry Hill, or Cherry Hill, Cherry Valley in Wyoming in 1778 um, under Brant and Tory Butler led the commander-in-chief of the Continental Armies to use energetic measures to subdue the atrocious depredations by making an invasion of the Indian country of the Six Nations to devastate and ruin their villages with a view of disabling them from further hostilities. It was known that in the fertile valleys of the Susquehanna and the Genesee along the lakes of central New York, large crops of corn and vegetables were raised not for the support of the Indians alone, but as supplies for the British Army. The territory it was proposed to lay waste was that occupied by the Senecas and the Cayugas, then the two most powerful nations of the Iroquois. Congress, on February 27, 1779, passed a resolution authorizing General Washington 
to take the most effectual measures for protecting the inhabitants of the northwestern frontier and to chastise the Indians. You see, it wasn't just General Washington writing an order, and it had to go through Congress, <clears throat> even then, pre-Constitution, uh, as we know it today. So we must remind our leaders of today that, you know, this is how you do things. A vigorous campaign was contemplated entailing the entire destruction of everything upon which the Indians depended for food and shelter. On March 6, 1779, Washington appointed General John Sullivan to take command of the expedition. The plan adopted was for the main army, under General Sullivan, to rendezvous at Wyoming and from there ascend the Susquehanna River while General James Clinton, starting from Albany, advancing with his brigade along the Mohawk as far as Kanajahari, was to transport his boats, troops, and provisions overland to Asego Lake and there await Sullivan's orders to form a junction with his troops at Tioga. To accomplish this, Clinton was compelled to erect a dam at the outlet of the Otsego Lake to get sufficient volume of water impounded to float his loaded boats down the shallow Susquehanna to Tioga. General Clinton at Albany had received his orders from General Sullivan on the 2nd of June, but in anticipation of these, active preparations had been making some time previous and accumulating stores and equipment. Before troops could be moved out on this expedition, food had to be I'm sorry, I'm becoming tongue-tied. Food had to be provided to support them. It is known that General Clinton had a three-month supply accumulated, principally through the energetic measures adopted by his sturdy brother George, then governor of New York State. The purchasing power of continental bills of credit were never at so low an ebb. Our most common staple commodities have never been so high in price in the history of our republic. Flour was so shamefully manipulated by profiteers that the price soared to $1 a pound. On the 6th of April, Governor Clinton's instructions to Walter Livingston, one of his new commissioners, was to seize wheat, flour, and meal in the county of Albany for the use of the army and deposit such supplies in some safe place in the manner of Livingston, where to remain until he, the governor, gave further orders respecting the same. Um, let's see. The supposition generally prevailing among writers of history and contemporary records that General Clinton cut a road through the forest from the Mohawk River to Astego, Astego Lake is ridiculous, as no such order is found in journals of his officers and roads following the former Indian trails were already in existence. Previous to 1773, the roads coursing southward from the Mohawk Valley were scarcely more than the continuation of Indian paths made over into lines of clearing suitable to pass cattle through the wilderness to the inland settlers. But in 1773, while under British control and six years previous to the coming of Clinton and his army, the commissioners of roads for the Kanajahari district, Nicholas Herkimer of the Fall Hill Dutch Dorf district, Henry Fay, Hendrick Fay of Fray's Bush, uh, Frederick Young, and uh, Robert Wells of Cherry Valley Springfield Division opened up and improved roads for the use of carts and wagons going to the interior settlements, thus making land available for habitation. One of the roads thus improved was that running from present Kanajahari Village to Cherry Valley. The old homestead building of the young was still standing in the year 8 Okay, 
The Cary Valley Road was the one used in deploying the left wing as far as Sprout Brook of Clinton's army. The road selected by Clinton for the portage of boats overland was the ancient King's Highway, starting from Happy Hollow at the Mohawk River, one and a half miles west of the mouth of the Kanahari Creek. Um, yeah, okay, the commissioners, commissioners had opened a new extension to wagon travel in 1773 from this road at a point one half mile west of the present village of Sprout Book, Brook over through the valley of Salt Springville to Springfield. This extension had, previous to its enlargement, been a primitive path adapted to horseback travel only. After being opened up by the commissioners, it made the distance to the residents of Springfield by wagon route from the Mohawk River five miles shorter than by way of the Cherry Valley Road. So you, you can see that it was still very, very um, primitive uh, country here. Um, let me get down to... They have, they go off into tangents on certain things that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, let me get down to, okay. The, uh, General, uh, Clinton's general orders for the movement of troops commenced on June 6, 1779 at Albany, issued to the 3rd New York Regiment. And on the 8th, the artillery was ordered to hold itself in readiness to march at the shortest notice from Albany. At Schenectady, June 11th, general orders show the methodical movement of the Mohawk Valley part of the expedition and is given uh, the, the order book. Um, there were they... Uh, the convoy, the boats, transports, provisions, and stores of equipage had to be at hand and ready in the river at Schenectady. And these boats were transported by land from Albany to Schenectady and loaded with a three-month stock of provisions, all of which had been carted overland, and at Schenectady were put in charge of Henry Glenn, who loaded them and sent them up the Mohawk River under a proper escort. Whew, that is, whoa. It's just amazing to me that they, they did all this in, in such conditions. On June 11th, when General Clinton had his headquarters at Schenectady, he ordered Lieutenant Colonel Pierre Regnier of the Old Fourth Line New York Regiment to proceed to Kanajahari Flats and lay out the ground upon which the troops would encamp. The Kanajahari Flats had been ancient maize land of the several Indian villages located on the highland of the Happy Hollow District in 1634. Uh, they also a copious supply of spring water along the hillsides for the use of the troops. So, um, let's see. That just tells the orders. Uh, the bateau of the army formed so important a part of the expedition that uh, it couldn't have happened. Um, it couldn't have gone forth had had they not. Uh, had this because they had, let's see, I'm sorry, high feet long, okay, the deparkation, okay, let's see, oh my goodness, they were quite the, each boat could carry 1,500 pounds of cargo, so it's just amazing how much they moved you know, first overland and then then up the river. Uh, okay. 
So let me go down and have more of this stuff. Um, you apply, Lieutenant. Okay, the journal. Okay, and the general orders issued at Camp Kanajahari Creek, June 17th. On the arrival of Lieutenant Colonel Wizenfeld's regiment, he will apply to the Quartermaster General for tools and immediately proceed to repair the roads from this place along the Cherry Valley Road till he comes to the Springfield Road, where he will take post until further orders. He will be careful to keep out guards and scouts as are necessary for his own security as to afford every assistance in his power to the wagons as they proceed. And uh, Lieutenant Rudolphus von Hovenberg writes, um, received orders for me for to march on the 17th and march about 6 in the morning. The troops crossed the Mohawk River at Walco Ferry and our baggage crossed at Major Frey's and our party joined the regiment at Kanajahari Flats and marched about five miles on the Cherry Valley Road and encamped there that night. And then on June 17th, William Butler arrived from Schenectady and camped on the Kanajahari Flats. And see, let me go down here. Um, The uh, movement of the overland portage of the boats and provisions was well underway on the morning of June 19th. Escorted uh, the stores, the regiment states that they escorted the stores to Springfield. The rifle corps were there and uh, cleared the passage for the wagons to unload the stores. 60 bateaux arrived at this lake, a quantity of provisions from the river. So you figure there were 60 boats, and they could each carry 1,500 pounds of, of supplies. So uh, let me go down here. Um, so there were, you know, scouting. They spent the next week scouting. Um, and then they just waited. I'm trying to get down to the the uh, thing here. Okay, and then on June 26th, the ammunition had just arrived at Kanajahari and was immediately ordered by wagons. And then they took it to uh, the 6th Massachusetts Regiment and delivered it up to the conductor of artillery stores at Lake Otsego. Okay. So, I mean, it's just amazing how much, I mean, you can read on and on about their, you know, preparations and, and provisions. Um, let's see. Clinton wrote to his brother, the governor, on July 6th, I have the pleasure to inform you that I am now at this place with 208 boats with all the stores, provisions, and baggage of the Army, and I am well convinced that such a quantity of each has never been transported over so bad a road in so short a time and with less accidents. I mean, it just amazed me when I read this, what they had attempted. I mean, it's like Knox going up to Canada to get all the artillery. Um, okay, so they arrived there. This is how they got there. And now they're going to find um, Madame Satcho. Yes. Okay. All right, so this is from NEH.gov again. Soldiers called her many things, a very old squaw, helpless, impotent wretch, anti-Diluvian hag, no idea what the heck that is, only one record, only one recorded anything like a name, Madame Satcho. 
Yet we would not even know that much about her if, in September 1779, Major General John Sullivan and his men had not stumbled across her in the desolate country of the Haudenosaunee, who have also been called many things, including, and we know that. Okay. <laughs> um, the land, though very recently bustling with Indians, was dearly abandoned. Kettles had been left in a hurry by the hearth. Books had been thrown aside. Yes, they knew how to read. Um, missionaries, and am I correct? The missionaries were trying to uh, teach the uh, Indians how to read. Well, also, they they also um, did, a, by this time, the, the Indians had become very well acquainted with the British and the French. I mean, there were tribes that could speak French. You know, yeah. They had to, um, they spoke French and English. So that they could, you know, discuss things with the fur traders and the the British armies and the French and you know, so well, yeah, they they had, you know, they. Well, had, it's, am- yeah. it's amazing to me, Deb. Everybody knew how to freaking read, and now we have a Department of Education, and no one knows how to read. I know. <sighs> yes. Okay, so books have been thrown aside, and tall corn stalks stood untouched, ready for harvest in the field. Those who had evacuated perhaps imagined they would be returning to their home soon. It was not to be. Sullivan and his men burned houses, fields, and whole towns down to the ground. Manum Sancho must have emerged from the smoke like a ghost, startling uncanny and with a tale to tell. It was about war, conflict, and flight. There are many such narratives from the American Revolution. For the soldiers at the time and for modern audiences, though, Madame Sancho is a surprise. Soldiers expected whooping warriors with tomahawks raised. Some modern, but Sullivan's campaign was no Lexington and Concord, nor was it Yorktown. It was another kind of battle with fewer casualties and yet profoundly destructive all the same. It may seem an obscure for resting episode, one little old lady against an entire set of regiments. Nevertheless, it reveals a small, unusually overlooked heroics of an ordinary woman caught in devastation. Do you love that line or what? Yes. Let me say it again. It reveals the small, unusually overlooked, usually overlooked, heroics of an ordinary woman caught in devastation, as well as something about one of the most important political players in early America, the Haddon no <laughs> I'm getting tongue tied as I'm saying it so much. Oh, there's a lot of words. It's like reading um uh the cat in the hat book, Seuss. It also tells us something about the circumstances in which US policy toward Native Americans was forged, which Deb had uh elaborated on. Finally it illuminates the agonizing decisions of that most famous American revolutionary soldier of all, General George Washington, which we also had talked about. Okay, so I'm going to go down in this article. Um, let's see. I already wrote that. Um, okay, here it is. Um, so under the command of Major General Sullivan, several regiments marched. Almost all the inhabitants fled before soldiers arrived, but the corn was ripening in the field. Under order, troops plundered houses and burned homes, <laughs> excuse me, fields and even orchards including 40 towns and 160,000 bushels of corn. To destroy the fields and orchards so carefully cultivated by the women 
was to inflict a visceral blow on the people of the Six Nations, evidently only just emerging from two years of poor harvest. Fruit trees take years to grow back. I know that. I used to have fruit trees in Florida. I miss them to death. In the midst of this carefully orchestrated rampage in early September, soldiers stumbled across Madame Sancho. And we're going to get to these soldiers' diaries. Soldiers' diaries recount the shock they felt on finding her, detailing how, through an Oneida interpreter, she conversed with General Sullivan himself. Some soldiers wanted to kill her immediately, but as one soldier recorded, the common dictates of humanity, a veneration for old age, and a regard for the female world of any age or denomination include, induced our general to spare her. Yeah, we're horrible, terrible war against women. This is why one of the reasons that we do this show. There was never a war against women, okay? The, the left, the, the progs have made this up. There still isn't a war against women. <sighs> okay. Um, Thatcher recounted to the general a tale in which there had been a council in her village during which, as one soldier recorded, there was a great debate between their warriors, their squaws, and children. The squaws had a mind to stay at home with their children. Other soldiers, including Sullivan, reported that the women wanted the men to stay and fight, but the warriors did not think they stood a chance against the American troops. True, perhaps, but a somewhat self-serving claim by American soldiers. Either way, there seems to have been a debate about whether to stay or fight or to flee, and the matrons were critical to this decision. Sullivan, Sullivan event evidentially disregarded Washington's order to take hostages of every age and sex. Well, he couldn't anyway. They weren't there. Yeah. That's why I never understood that, that line when I read it the last time. There was no one there. Well, what were we going to say? Sullivan not only left Satchel alone, but provided her with food and shelter. The diarist and most subsequent historians emphasize the gift of food Sullivan made her when his own soldiers did not have much to eat. They do even they do so even after recognizing that Sullivan and his men were destroying all of the food that the Hadnoswani had planted, cultivated, and saved. Contemporary and historical accounts assume Satchel's helplessness and victimization, as well as Sullivan's personal kindness. A few troops condemn their leader's actions. One soldier, having already complained bitterly of hungry bellies and hard duty, observed caustically after the gift of food. I suppose she will live in splendor. Other soldiers lauded the gallantry of their leader. General Sullivan gave her a consider considerable supply of flour and meat, for which, with tears in her savage eyes, she expressed a great deal of thanks. Here the general was a protector, indeed a good angel, of a powerless old woman, as another witness phrased it. Such a meeting and the gallantry of the commanding officer to this elderly woman relived some of the bad feelings generated by what the soldiers, mostly farmers, in the norm normal run of life felt under storing what they could see were fruitful, well-cultivated farms. Numerous soldiers stressed the bounty and beauty of the towns and crops they were demolishing. In a typical entry, and this is what I read um, to Brian last night, one lieutenant wrote that, our brigade destroyed about 150 acres of the best corn that I ever saw, sold to the stalks from 16 feet high, besides great quantities of beans, potatoes, pumpkins, cucumbers, squashes, and watermelons. One diarist recorded that Sancho's town contained nearly 50 houses in, in good, in, in general, very good. We found several very fine cornfields, which afforded the greatest plenty. One soldier declared that we destroyed all their houses and fruit trees this afternoon, which seems to us a pity. Another wrote home, I really feel guilty as I applied the torch to huts that were homes of content until we ravagers came spreading desolation everywhere. See, 
Now, that's the difference between Americans. Even today, our soldiers are not savages, right, Deb? Right, and and this just shows you that, you know, people are people. Like, some of the soldiers were upset, others were, were proud. And, I mean, you see that in the military today, um, where you have disagreements among the the troops about, you know, whosoever's orders are coming down, what to do. And it's just that people are people, and they're affected differently. And But we always try to take the high road. I mean, when Washington said take the, the women and children as hostages, you know damn well that he was going to put them in a place where they were safe and they were fed and, and taken care of. And I'm sure he would have sent in any medicine he had to help the sick. You know, I, that's just what he did. That was his principle. And that's what we do. It's what, you know, Israel does, too. Um, you know, those, those the countries that, like, America and, and our allies, the ones that we used to have as allies, and we're going to get them back now, um, you know, we, we look at we look at them as people, uh, whereas our enemy, especially today, didn't really they were they were just if they were in the way too bad, and you know, um, in the in the 18th century, there was a different mindset. It wasn't until later on into the 19th century that um, in the westward expansion that it really got icky. And, uh, you know, uh, there were a few people who made some very terrible decisions. But at this time, you know, they were killing our people, and this was, you know, again, a way to stop it. You know, as a soldier, George Washington knew that the scorched earth would put an end to it quickly and fewer people eventually would die. Exactly. Okay, so Satchel appears, Van Satchel appears to have exploited the uneasiness that men felt about their need to show kindness to women and children, even amid the terrible imperatives of war and the need to inflict suffering on an enemy. Still, the record of Satchel's testimony tantalizes with other questions, ones not addressed in the detailed and well-sourced treatments of this campaign. And this, and this, I know I'm doing this like from histor, you know, from a historic, uh, historian's point of view, which we don't do too often. But this was really important, the stuff that he brought up. Yeah, and that's why I like this article. It was really well done. It really was. Okay, so the well-sourced treatment of this campaign. Why was she left, and why did she tell this tale? It seems unlikely that even if she were old and infirm, that her clan and kin, maybe even her children and grandchildren, would have just left a vulnerable nation behind to be killed by U.S. soldiers. As historian Daniel Rector has observed, these matrons, the women of the lineage's eldest living generation, were dominant figures morally, economically, and to some degree politically. Also, why did she reveal this much detail about internal disagreements to what was, without a doubt, the enemy? Some historians have claimed that she was threatened physically, but this point is not clear. It also seems somewhat unlikely. The soldiers saw a poor old creature relying on Sullivan's humanity. Most historians have followed suit. But what if we doubt these characterizations? It seems possible that she chose to say, 
to stay to sacrifice herself to plant and gather information which may have helped her countrymen and women. After all, she likewise told us that a great deal of many squaws and children was over a hill somewhere near Seneca Lake, in consequence of which a detachment of three to four hundred men went in pursuit but returned without seeing any of them. Maybe her story of the council also served to emphasize that if women were captured, that they should be treated with humility, humanity, too, because after all they had wanted peace and did not agree with the warriors. Although the soldiers emphasized such a lonely impotence, she was not alone. When the detachment returned a few weeks later, they found a body of a younger woman who had evidently been helping her. She had been shot, supposed to be done by some of the soldiers. The murder of this young woman, a violation of that regard for the female world, which even several soldiers denounced as the actions of some inhuman villain, indicates the justified fears of the Hanoi and I'm not on Onondaga. On how do you say that? Okay, Onondaga. Chief later contended that when the U.S. soldiers attacked his village, they put to death all the women and children. That's bull. I'm sorry, that's bull. And I don't think she got. I don't think she got shot by um, an American soldier. Um, I'm sorry. I think that's bull too. Uh, the haunting trajectory of the murdered young woman whose name is lost reminds us that the violence against all kinds of women, settler and Indian, patriot and loyalist, occurred during this war. Isn't that great? That's a great paragraph. Right? Yeah, yeah, because it did. Yeah. When the people of the Six Nations fled their homes, they cast aside books, including some volumes of the early 18th century English periodical, The Spectator. Did these include the volume, One Wonders, in which the editors lamented that civil war, quote, fills a nation with spleen and rancor and extinguishes all the seeds of good nature, compassion, and humanity? After all, the destruction of the orchards, crops, and homes of the Six Nations resonated long after the autumn of 1779. So there you have it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, the horrendous part of war, um, where you know once you once once one one side starts fighting the other side has to fight back and then the other side fights back because of the fighting back and 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 unfortunately you know wars can last a long time and there are you know the the casualties of war the fog of war and the devastation of war this is why we don't like to go to war and this is why um, was it was it uh, General Lee in the Civil War said um, it's so good that war is uh, so awful, or it would be so much more frequent? Um, well, and that's the problem right now. That's why it's so much more frequent. It's not as awful. Yeah, it just really isn't. And the other thing is that you know this, these Muslims, we've been fighting them since for centuries because we haven't devastated them. We just, like, you know, beat them and then beat them. We, what we do is we beat them back. So then they go back and they regroup. Yeah. They need to be devastated. Just like uh, George Washington says, they need to be destroyed. Destroyed. Yeah. And I'm sorry, there isn't a good Muslim. There just isn't because you can't trust them and you don't know what they'll do if they get the upper hand. 
And also Muslims are killing Muslims. So you know what I'm saying? It's just we need to fight a real war. I mean, World War II was the last war, Deb, that we've actually fought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because Korea and Vietnam were called police actions. I mean, it was we were fighting for other people. Well, and it's, it wasn't just that, is that we didn't destroy the enemy. Nope, because we, we were destroyed for other people. In World War II, we destroyed the enemy. We just devastated them so that they would never do this ever again. But we can see by Madame Sacho how she's, we still don't know why she stayed behind. She did give them intelligence. Um, so it, it's a mystery. This is a kind of a mystery. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now we have the journals, and I really want to get into them before the end of the show, and it's 7.32. Okay. All righty. Okay. And this is uh, exploringupstate.com, the story of Catherinestown, New York. Uh, let's see. All righty, let me get down to the... Well, Sergeant Moses Fellows says this uh, part of the country was one of the thickest and most miry swamps I ever saw. Okay. 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 Catherine Creek. Okay. This is. Okay. That's. Okay. Um, Alrighty. We're just continuing down. Okay. From the Journal of Lieutenant William Barton. Wednesday, September 1st, then came into a very thick swamp, chiefly white and spruce pines. After marching one mile on the swamp, oh, I'm so sorry, was, <coughs> excuse me, was under the necess- necessity of halting for one hour until a road was cleared for the artillery to pass, then proceeded after halting through difficulties of the way for five miles, in which time we forded a creek that ran through the swamp 15 different times continued for the whole day. Near dark, again entered a swamp, very difficult and bad marching, our pack and other horses still increasing the mud so as to make it impassable through darkness, etc. Some, however, attempting it, were mired down with flour and baggage, where many lay all night. In this manner, the road was strewed for about four miles. Had the savages availed themselves of this opportunity, it must have proved very fatal to us, for they might with ease have destroyed a great part of our provisions with a party very inconsiderable. And finally, at midnight, they reached Catherine's town, named for Catherine Montour, the part French, part Mohawk leader of the Senecas. Thus continued our march until 12 o'clock at night when we arrived at French Catherine, an Indian town, deserted by them a few hours before our troops came in. March as disagreeable as I have experienced, sometimes up to our knees in mud and mire, and so dark as not to be able to keep the path by any other means than being close to our front man. When we arrived, our situation still disagreeable, not having our baggage or any covering, and in an expectation of being attacked every moment until morning, men exceedingly fatigued, having marched 14 miles within 15 days, with 15 days flour on their backs, exclusive of the other pack. Their nerves on end, their muscles exhausted from carrying their own supplies through a dense swamp to disable the pack horses, these men expected to be attacked at any moment. 
And this is from the Journal of Dr. Jabez Campfield, September 1st, 1779. This day's march was so exceeding difficult, it to- being totally dark and through a thick swamp and thus expecting momentarily attack from the enemy, our army totally unacquainted with the situation of the place and knowing the enemy were there. Okay, and then um, from Major John Burroughs. And this is this is what I was reading, you know, before with what Clinton had to do to get to the place where they had to be and, and carrying all the provisions. Um, it seems like maybe the, the river, the, the getting the boats up the river was the easiest part. This is uh, from Major Jembro. We reached this place at 11 o'clock at night, a march of 14 miles through roads that can't be described. Eight miles of the way was a most horrid swamp. The last four miles, the Army had to ford one creek 17 times. Mud holes were excessively bad. Our pack horses tired out, sticking fast in the swamps, the packs in the mud, the men giving out, they having 14 days' provisions on their backs exclusive of their other baggage. We make up a fire and roast corn for our supper and lay down about one o'clock to sleep with the heaven to cover us. We never had so bad a day's march since we set off, but what will not men go through who are determined to be free? Okay, and this is um, the 2nd of September. Early this by Major Jeremiah Fogg. Can I just interrupt you a minute? Sure. I love that last line. No, oh, not would men go through to be free. I know. It's just, it's, we don't, we've lost that. Yes, yes. Okay. okay. Early this morning we found in a bark hut an awful object, and upon examination it appeared to be Madame Sacho, one of the Tuscarora tribe, whose silver locks, wrinkled face, dim eyes, and curvitude of body denoted her to be a full-blooded Andaluvian hag. Like many of the men in this, on this expedition, Fogg describes the Iroquois with particularly dehumanizing, dehumanizing language, though he is the only person to ascribe this woman a name. And then from Lieutenant Hercules Beatty, on Thursday the 2nd. This morning, a very aged squaw was found in a cornfield who was not able to get of with age. She was brought in, and she told us that the warriors had stayed in town till near night. Before they went away, likewise told us that a great many squaws and children was over a hill somewhere near Seneca Lake, four or five miles of in consequence of which Colonel Butler, with a detachment of three or 400 men in the cohorn, went out of about 12 o'clock in pursuit of them, and returned in the evening without seeing any of them. The old squaw, after she was examined at headquarters, they was going to send her to the Indians, but she was so old she could not ride. From her looks and what we could learn, she must be, I think, about 120 years old. Our Indians built a house for her, and we gave her provision and left her. And again from Major John Burroughs. One of the soldiers found at this place this morning an old squaw and a bunch of bushes. She not being able to get off with them, she was hid there to be safe. She is the greatest picture of old age I ever saw. The general sent for her. She was carried to his mark. The poor old creature was just ready to die with fear, thinking she was to be killed. She informed the general that there was a great debate between the warriors, their squaws, and children. The squaws had a mind to stay at home with their children. It was carried to such a length that the warriors were obliged to threaten to scalp the women if they did not go. 
They sent them off about the middle of the afternoon. The warriors themselves stayed till after sunset the evening we got in. When I first read about, oh, you know, um, and this is Major General John Sullivan's official report to Congress. We arrived near Catherine's town in the night and moved on in hopes to surprise it, but found it forsaken. On the next morning, an old woman belonging to the Cayuga Nation was found in the woods. They still haven't gotten that quite right. She informed me that on the night after the Battle of Newtown, the enemy, having fled the whole night, arrived there in great confusion early the next day, that she heard the warriors tell their women they were conquered and must fly, that they had had a great many killed and vast numbers wounded. She likewise heard the lamentations of many at the loss of their connections. In addition to this, she assured us, that some other warriors had met Butler at this place and desired him to return and fight again. But to this request, they could obtain no satisfactory answer, for as they observed, Butler's mouth was closed. The warriors who had been in the action were equally averse to the proposal and would think of nothing but flight and removal of their families, but they kept runners on every mountain to observe the movements of our army, who reported early in the day on which we arrived that our advance was very rapid, upon which all those who had not been before sent off, fled with precipitation, leaving her without any possible means of escape. She said that Branch had taken most of the wounded up the Tiago in canoe. I was, for many circumstances, fully convinced of the truth and sincerity of her declaration, and the more so as we had, the day we left Newtown, discovered a great number of bloody packs, arms, and accoutrements thrown away in the road, and in the woods, each side of it, besides which we discovered a number of recent graves, one of which has been since opened, containing the bodies of two persons who had died by wounds. The army marched onward, making camp at Peach Orchard in the current town of Hector on the night of September 3rd. Um, within three weeks, most of Sullivan's army would be back in Catherine's town, marching on their way to eastern Pennsylvania, with their goal of having destroyed the breadbasket of both the Iroquois and British, who had planned on the bounty of Iroquois County to sustain them through the winter. Uh, let's see. And this is Lieutenant Colonel Adam Hubley on Thursday, September 3rd, 23rd. About 8 o'clock this morning, the Army marched and arrived at Catherine's Town about 2 o'clock p.m., where we made a small halt. Halt. We found at this place an old Indian squaw who was left here on our march up the country. General Sullivan gave her a considerable supply of flour and meat, for which, with tears in her savage eyes, she expressed a great deal of thanks. During our absence from this place, a young squaw came and attended on the old one, but some inhumane villain who passed through killed her. What made this crime still more heinous was because a manifesto was left with the old woman. The old squaw positively forbidding any violence or injury should be committed on the women or children of the savages, by virtue of which it appears this young squaw came to this place, which absolutely comes under the virtue of a breach of faith, and the offender ought to be severely punished. Ah. Uh, um. Let's see. And then it goes on about some woman who thinks that the worst occurred. I don't know why. Um, okay, and this is another um, journal entry by Samuel, Lieutenant Samuel M. Shute. 
We found the old squaw in the place we had left her. Her provision and wood was exhausted, and she in tears and was not able to get more, but was much rejoiced at the sight of the army, her friends, as she called us. We found likewise the younger squaw at some distance shot and thrown into a dish, ditch and half covered with mud. The old squaw said that she did not know of the other one. The general left her about 100 pounds of flour and 50 pounds of beef. God, that was a lot. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, it says, you know, when questioned, Grandmother Sacho disclaimed knowledge of what had befallen her young companion. This might well have been true, since she was not ambulatory and the girl's body had been found at some distance, yet Grandmother might also have been afraid to name men who had already shown themselves capable of vicious crimes. Uh, and then, oh, it's about somebody else, um, the person that the town was named for. So, uh, again, and this is why sometimes we sound disjointed, you know, in our reading here, but there's a lot of articles and, and things that we read that go cover a wide range of, of um items and we have to pick and choose and sometimes our our little computers get you know caught up and we have to wait for them to move on so we do apologize for that but it's really amazing what we have found in our research on women of the revolution and we're still finding them I mean, Susan found this woman I had never heard of. I had never heard of this. So this is the... Uh, and, and, and when you read the contextual um, background of it, you get a better idea. And this is what is so lost in, in, in what we're, we're teaching our kids today um, so that they can come out and say, you know, America was bad right from the beginning, you know. Um, no, 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 no. You you have to understand the context in which these events happened. What was going on behind the scenes? What had been happening previously? What their main goal was? Uh, you you and what the attitude of society was at the time, and and the different cultures that that made up the the the, the new country. Um, it's just amazing how complex this actually was. And I think of all the decisions that George Washington had to make, and he made some very, very large decisions with not much supply, not much army, and he also had to fight Congress on things um, because by the end of the 70s, the Congress sitting at that time was not the Congress of the early 70s. They were very different men who had taken seats. And um, and again, you get, you get and, and, and a lot of these people had never met each other. You have to remember this. They came from all these different colonies, and because of travel at that time, you know, they had never met until they met up in Philadelphia to sit 
in Congress. You know, so they, they the Congress people were, you know, learning about each other and. Well, the other thing that we brought up is number one, we've been we were fighting with the Indians since the day we we got here. I mean, there were some friendly tribes, but it, it always turned bad. Um, and the second thing is that what you said earlier about the commander in chief, you brought this this point home. He was a con- the reason in the um, Constitution, the final Constitution, that the Commander-in-Chief can wage war, the Congress has to declare war. And that comes directly from George Washington having problems with the Continental Congresses through the Revolution. And the colonies um, and the representatives were like, they were always fighting with each other, right? Everyone thinks that, oh, we got together with Kumbaya. No. No, because it was called self-interest, okay? Right. And each colony had a self-interest. But at the same time, they wanted to be one nation with sovereign states having self-interest because every state is different. Every person's different. Every people in the state are different. Um, the states have different industries that, they, that made them prosperous. Uh, and that this, this homogenation is not going to work. It's going gonna, it's gonna to break. I mean, it, it just is. One size fits all does not work with us. Right. So they going back to what I said, that they were constantly arguing with one another. And during this bickering, George Washington's out there going, what the hell am I supposed to do? Yeah. So when, and if you think, and also Thomas Jefferson, and we're going to bring this up all the time, and we bring it up on the uncooperative radio show too, and I'm hoping that brings it up on Nin's show. Thomas Jefferson went to war with the Barbary Pirates, which were fuzzy muzzies, which were Muslims, for four years without even... He only did was inform Congress what he was doing. Now, the only other thing Congress can do at that point is not fund the troops. That's constitutional. But for him to say, you know what, we need to go to war with these people, you go to war. And, you know, libertarians get this wrong. We have had... Libertarians on our show, and that's why we don't have them anymore, because they cannot get over this this fact. When Congress declares war, it is an international declaration, yep. meaning that any people, any country that allies themselves with the country we're at war with is also our enemy. It's a really serious deal. Yes. And that's why the Congress was like, well, first of all, if we're being attacked, we can't have four days of a debate. And that's what would happen in the, in the War of 1812. Yeah. You know, the Congress would be debating what to do about the British. You know, the British were already marching on us. And then, um, what do you call it, um, James Madison was like, no, we're declaring war, and he ran. Dolly, God bless that woman, man. She made sure she got as much as she could out of there. She was not leaving. <laughs> she got the stuff out of the White House. Yes. She cut General Washington's portrait out of its frame and rolled it up and took it. <laughs> well, that wasn't the only thing. She was gathering up papers. Yeah, the Congress was- we have that portrait is because of Dolly Madison. Right, but that wasn't the only thing she was taking. She was taking important important congressional uh, papers, and she was putting it in. She dumped her own clothes and her own belongings out 
yep. up her chest and went down to the Library of Congress and grabbed as much as she possibly could. But the point was, Congress didn't decide in the role of 1812 that we were going to war with Britain. James Madison did. And unfortunately for everybody, I hate the man and he's going to rot in hell. But when Obama is waging these wars, it's the only thing, Deb, the only thing this damn man has done that's constitutional. How pathetic is that? I know. I know. I'm sorry to get upset, but this is like a pet peeve of behind an eye about, oh, no, he gets this. No, he does not. No. And there was a reason for that. that. And it goes all the way back to all the problems that George Washington had with the Continental Congress. Yeah, there's a reason there are things in the Constitution. They didn't just go willy-nilly, let's put this in. There were reasons for every single word in the Constitution. And there was a, what, how, let's see, they showed up in, in, they started showing up in May, and they didn't leave until the end of September? Yeah, it was four. Yeah. So, and committee, and you know what kills me, too, about this, and I'll I'll let you opine. Um, Why, in God's name, if the words didn't mean anything, would they spend four months on it? Yeah. And the debates they had, and the committees, and and the the votes, and it was horrendous. And they were caught up in this room, and they couldn't open the windows because they didn't want anybody to know because they were really not doing supposed to be doing this, actually. So they kept the windows closed, and it was the summer in Philadelphia, and they didn't have air conditioning people. But they stuck to it. They didn't go, oh, it's too hard. Okay, I'm going to end with this, the last quote. Um, but in this article, and then we're going to head out because it's almost 5 2. Yes. Soldiers patronously dismiss Sancho as an old squaw. Too often historians have accepted this kind of characterization. Yes, this, yes, this mother of our people still has power, if only we care to see it. Telling her story recaps all other older narratives. The image of George Washington simply as a compassionate father of the nation has already come under pressure since he was also a slaveholder. So no one freed his slaves in his will, and uh, I hate when they do this crap. His treatment of Indian women suggests other roles. At least some contemporaries, I'm just putting this out there for you to disseminate, okay? I don't agree with what this person said already, but this is called knowledge. And then you get to disseminate it, and you get to say yay or nay, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, and his treatment of Indian women suggests other roles, as least some contemporaries recognized. In 1790, a Seneca chief informed Washington, when your army entered the country of the Six Nations, we called you town destroyer. And to this day, when your name is heard, our women look behind them and turn pale, and our children cling close to the necks of their mothers. Here were some of the painful costs of what participants called the late unhappy war. For some, the founding father was, in fact, a town destroyer. This is what wars, even good wars, do. They force dreadful choices on decent people and inflict suffering on innocent ones. Peering into the smoke rising from the longhouses of the Six Nations, we see one nation's savage core. We also see the unexpected courage of those who withstood the horrors and endured. That's war, people. Yep. 
That is war. They force dreadful choices on decent people and inflict suffering on innocent ones. Yes. That's why we don't want to go to war. Nope. And that's why these wars should not be easy. Mm-hmm. So there you go, Madam Sato. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't you have loved to have been able to listen to her stories? Yeah. Like just sit next to her and listen to her? Yeah. You know, just have her tell the stories of the, the clan and and her life and her family's life and what it was like. I mean, if she was, she she might not have been 120, but she she probably had at least four decades. Uh, I mean, eight, 80 decades. Um, no, wait a minute. Eight decades. <laughs> I can't do math now. Oh, God. Well, I've been knitting and, and counting stitches, too, and that doesn't help. Um, Any, anyway, we're going to get out of here. Quite yes. Um, so the first thing that I want to say is please, everyone go to the Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us, patriotspub.us. And if you go to talk to, I think Brian said under Uncooperative Radio, there's Patriots Pub, Uncooperative Radio, and this show called the Women of the Revolution. Brian made up an a, a internet radio station for us, Deb. So we're all together, one-stop shopping about history, and well, my show's like wild. So, <laughs> but um, go to PatriotsPub.us. That's um, the one individual. But UncooperativeRadio.com will bring you to all three, including ours. Education. Look, Trump won. Okay, we're just slowing it down. We're not. It's not cured. We still need to do the long haul. And with that, Deb always takes us out. Okay, and speaking of war, um, we've lost quite a few these past few mo- uh, few weeks of our kids in uniform. Oh, let's hope this change. Please pray for uh, wisdom amongst our leaders um, and that we get some, some uh, good people in the new administration that understands what is needed so that our kids can come home all in one piece and at peace, um, and and like I say, on a you know, please visit a VA hospital and go visit some some vets. They love visitors, and they need to know we care. Uh, they 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 walked through the fire, and it's our turn to help them come back. And oh, the next couple of months, most dangerous time in a president's term, so pray that uh, this country gets back on track, and uh, y'all have a good week. Thanks for stopping by. We appreciate you coming and listening to us, and we'll be back next week, hopefully, and, you know, everything goes all right technically and otherwise. Uh, Please join us again to um, learn about another amazing woman of the Revolutionary War. Good night, everybody. Good night, Loki. We miss you. And signing off. Okay, why aren't you signing off?
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.